Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, we are in the middle of a series that has been interrupted week after week. I was looking at this. I'm not sure we're going to get through this entire series this morning, uh, but we're going to take a good run at it. If not, uh, next week, my brother Christopher will be here. He's going to be preaching. Uh, he's going to come and minister, and that's going to be good. Christopher really carries the presence of God, and uh, those of you that know him know that to be the case. And, uh, and then the following week, if we don't get it through it this morning, we'll take another shot at it, and it'll be our fourth installment. What we're looking at, we're calling this series Strange New World. I shamelessly stole it from the book by that title, and uh, I, I don't think I've ever preached directly from a book. I've never used a book's outline. Uh, now, I often share things I read, and a lot of times I don't even know it. A lot of times I'll, I'll share something, I'll be studying, and I'll think, oh man, that's powerful. I'll preach it, and then three weeks later I'll pick up a book I read 20 years ago and thought, oh man, I got that from that book. I didn't realize it. Uh, but this one, I've, I've really gone deep into Carl Truman's two books, uh, Strange New World, and then his other book, I want to say it was The Triumph of the Therapeutic Self. Uh, and really, Carl Truman is unpacking our culture. He's looking at how did we get where we're at. And uh, in his book, he, asks, he, he, he gives us this scenario, and I think it really is a good setup, a jumping off point, kind of frames what we're talking about. He says this, he said, a generation ago, if someone were to go into the doctor's office, if a man were to come in and say, I am a woman stuck in a man's body, the doctor would have said, this is a problem. We're going to send you to a psychiatrist to align your brain, your head, with your body. But today, if he were to go into a doctor and say, I'm a woman stuck in a man's body, he is just as likely to hear the words, this is a problem, but be, instead of being sent to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, he would be sent to a surgeon to align his body with his mind. And this is a seismic shift in culture. And so we need to ask ourselves, how did we get here? And there's, there's several reasons that you and I need to understand this. Number one, we need to understand the world in which we live. It's long been understood by missionaries going to another country that you need to understand the culture to minister to the culture. Uh, we need to be able to understand the people we're talking to. There was a time in America where you could quote the scripture and even unbelievers would give credence to what is said. There was a fear of the Lord, and they, we were living on what Francis Schaeffer called a moral memory. There were people living from a moral base. They may not even have been raised in church, but the culture was so saturated with Christian ideals that they would know what you're talking about, and there was a reverence for the Bible. We have a new world we're living in, in this nation, and that is, causes a greater challenge. There's a sense in which we have to preach up to the word and not simply from it. There was a time where we could quote the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says. Now we often have to find external realities around in the culture and then use those to preach to the Bible. What I mean by that, is, for instance, uh, you know, the Bible is very clear on sexual morals. We talked last time about Freudian psychology and Freud's view of sexuality and how he redefined human beings through the lens of sex. And there was a time in our country where we could just quote the word and people would understand where we're coming from. Now we quote the word and people scratch their head like, why would you believe in that ancient book? And so we've got to preach up to the Lord. You can put it this way, that the Bible is true, everything in the Bible is true, but it's not true because it's in the Bible. Now hold on here, don't get nervous. It's not true because it's in the Bible. It was true before the Bible was written. And therefore, if it was true before the Bible was ever written, before the scriptures were codified and put in a book, those truths were already true. So it's not simply true because it's in the Bible. We can come to it and trust this book is true. We can base our lives upon it. But if we believe it's only true because it's in the Bible, then we have to, the only way that we can base anything is to preach from the Bible and not necessarily to it. 
because it's true and it was true before it was in the word, then there's external realities that will back that word. There are, there are things in God's creation we can point to that are foundational that we can say, there would have been a time where we would have said to a person, listen, my heart breaks for you because you are attracted to the same gender sexually. And there's healing in Jesus and we wanna walk you through deliverance. And the reason we take this position is because the Bible says such and such. And people accepted that. Today we have to start externally and, and show the damage of the homosexual lifestyle, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the statistics are all there. And when we make a case there, then we say, that is why the Bible says, and we preach to the Bible. Do you, do you understand where I'm coming from here? And so, the, the Bible is true, but we need to understand the culture in which we live, just like a missionary needs to understand the culture into which they're going so they know how to apply the word of God to that unique culture. You and I need to know how to apply the word of God to the unique culture in which we find ourselves. And, for a very, and a, to a very real degree that those of us who have been in church for many decades, this is an alien world when we walk out of there. When a man says, I'm a woman stuck in a man's body, we don't understand where they're coming from. They're basing their stance on feelings. And so we don't understand where they're coming from. And we need to understand in order to compassionately minister to those individuals and bring them into the truth. And so we need to understand what was the, the shift philosophically, what brought us to this point where now the medical community is saying, let's do surgery on your body to align you with your feelings. When at one time we would have said, let's counsel you to align your mind with your body. And so we looked a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, because we've had special speakers in. We were, we've been looking at three things, and we're in our three installment, third installment, rather, this morning. Okay, we were looking at uh, Rousseau, the, the French philosopher of the 1700s. Rousseau was the first of the Romantics, and it's important we understand Rousseauian philosophy. Rousseau believed that man, he, he believed in the noble savage, Many of us have heard that terminology and you've witnessed this on the big screen, that worldview, uh, it's, it's an accepted worldview and what Rousseau did is Rousseau rejected the biblical anthropology of the Bible. He, doesn't, he did not believe that man was fallen. So therefore man's problem wasn't his nature, it was nurture. His problem wasn't internal, it was external. The solution was not to change man, the solution was to change his circumstances. And in Rousseau's case, Rousseau believed that man was his best when he's unencumbered by external rules and morals. If you just let a man be free to follow his passions, to follow his inclinations and his instincts, you would see the ultimate pure man and man at his best. I wish I could talk to Rousseau. He's been dead for several hundred years. But I can tell him from experience, I tried that. It didn't work too well. It, ended, it caused me to be arrested and homeless and all kinds of other things. So Rousseau had this anthropology. So let's just pause here. We've talked about this from a theological perspective many times. You, you've, if you've been around here at any time at all for a couple of years, you've heard me say this. The most important thing about you is your answer to this question, who is God? What is God like? The most important thing about you is your theology, your view of God. The second most important thing about you is your identity. Your answer to the question, who am I? What am I like? That's why when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Immediately following their correct answer, he began to tell Peter, the one who gave him the answer, who he was. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Your theology and your identity are the two most important things about you. Your theology is like the center pole in a tent. When that goes down, everything descends with it. And the first thing to go down is the, our view of man. 
Initially, it looks like, oh man, if you remove God, man has ascended to take the place of God. Now, we're the, we're the center of creation. The problem with that is we quickly descend when we realize that we're no different than all the other animals. We're part of the animal kingdom and we follow our instincts. Rousseau wrote a, a book called Confessions and most scholars believe it was a direct attack against Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, his book called Confessions. And many people look at Augustine's book as the first autobiography. He gave his readers a view into the internal life, his struggle with sin. But Augustine had a biblical worldview and a, a biblical anthropology or a biblical view of man. He saw that he was fallen and he knew his big struggle, his big problem was himself. Let me just say it again. Let's, let's turn it on us. Our biggest problem is us. I don't remember the, the cartoon. I read it years ago. It said, I have I found the enemy and he is us. And uh, that, that's, that's truth. That's good theology. Our problem is primarily nature. Secondarily, nurture. You can have hangups because of the way you were raised, but your ultimate issue is your nature and responding improperly to the way you were raised. Even if you've been abused, there's healing for that, but it's our embittered response inciting against God's word that will cause us the most problems. And so Rousseau had an unbiblical anthropology, an unbiblical view of man. He didn't believe man was fallen. Rousseau was the first of the Romantics, and he believed that man was defined, that the, the, uh, the real you is defined by your feelings, what you feel about yourself. And if you just follow your inclinations, your instincts, your passions, your desires, you will become the ultimate you. And the best thing that could happen for man is to remove all moral boundaries and just let him run free. That was Rousseauian philosophy. Well, we see how this laid the groundwork for what we have today. Man is driven by his feelings. Then last week, we talked about how, whereas Rousseau, Rousseau created what is known as the therapeutic self. Everything is about feelings today. It took a couple hundred years to get here, but Rousseau really laid the groundwork so everything is looked at through the lens of man's feelings. So it's the therapeutic culture. Everything's been redefined by feelings, whether it's abuse. And this is what's behind these things. When people say, oh, when you talk like that, I don't feel safe. I need a safe place. I feel threatened by your words. Words are violence. All of that is based on a therapeutic view of man that the most important thing about me is my feelings. And therefore, anything you do that violates my feelings is, is oppression against me. And so that's what's behind this thing. So Rousseau redefined the self as the therapeutic man. Then Freud came along and Freud redefined the self as the sexual man. And I said it two weeks ago, and I'll, I'll reiterate it, that Freud was really a pervert. And there were several of these psychoanalysts and philosophers that were very perverted in their worldview. In, in losing God, they began to worship creation and primarily as the, through, the, through the sexual experience. And Freud was no different. Freud was, he, he viewed man as sexual and sexually driven from childhood. Even infants were sexual beings. And so he, he developed this worldview that man was sexual. The primary fixture of man's personality and identity was a sexual a view of man. And so that, you add that to this, and we see how this drives where we're at today. I just was telling my wife, and she said, I don't even want to hear it. I, up, up on my feed came a book. It was called, I, I want to say it was called uh, Sexual Education for 9 to 13 year olds by healthy parents, by, the, by healthy or well-adjusted parents. And some of the suggestions was bring your little toddler children into bed with you while you make love to teach them. And this is being pushed 
on this, this society, but it comes from these two worldviews that even children are sexual. And so we see parents, you've seen it in the news, where parents are taking their kids to strip clubs and, and uh, you know, having them dance on poles and all this grotesque stuff. And there's an alarm within us because of our worldview. And we think, what is going on? This is nuts. I'm telling you, ideas have consequences. These are not small things. And when these are allowed entrance, these ideas will bear fruit. And so it flows directly from Freud's view of the sexualized man. And others built upon that. We talked about, uh, I forget the guy's name. and uh, Kinsey, yeah, Alfred Kinsey. He was, I mean, this guy was, he actually paid people to sexually molest children while he studied the data. And uh, he, he, he is really, the Kinsey Institute is the foundation of our sexual education in America. And they even made a big movie about him. I think it was Liam Neeson played Kinsey. And uh, they look at his, him as this hero, but the guy was a very twisted, perverted man that should have been jailed for what he did. And what he did, we, we talked about this last time, but his, he didn't reveal the parameters of his study. And so he said, I studied thousands of normal men and women and then he came out, with, he asked them all these sexual questions. What, you know, have you ever been involved in this? Have you done this? Have you done that? Have you ever been involved in this? And he made this landmark study. The first book he wrote, I think, was The Sexual Behavior of the Human Male. And the second book, three years later, was The Sexual Behavior of the Human Female. And it came out that, man, almost a very large portion of the population was having, uh, having affairs. They were involved in homosexuality, some even in bestiality and all kinds of grotesque stuff. What he didn't share, and it came out much later, was that the parameters of his case study went into prisons and he interviewed criminals, prostitutes, and pedophiles. And he took the fringe perverted fringe of sexual behavior and sold it as the norm. And so suddenly people that were normal were pushed to the fringe and it caused a psychological self-doubt in our culture. And it caused people that were, had normal biblical sexual morality as a part of their, the fabric of their life, they began to have self-doubt. Man, am I the weirdo? And he foisted this on society. It, uh, Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, was the one who, he, he pointed to Kinsey's study and said, I feel justified in launching the Playboy empire. I feel almost obligated. Because everybody's doing this anyways. We're just a bunch of hypocrites pretending we're not. And it was a lie. There's a reason the people that were involved in that type of behavior were the fringe of society. Institutionalized. Because that was the fruit of that behavior. In Kinsey, his life unraveled. And many of the, the names that we've brought out, their lives and their families unraveled. Rousseau had four children. You know what he did? As soon as they were born, he put them in orphanages. He said they're better off being raised by someone else. That's the fruit of his philosophy. Yet many people base their life on this man's philosophy. What, is, what does the word say? Jesus said, wisdom is known by her children. In other words, the validity of a philosophy is known by the, second, the fruit in the second generation. How has it affected the children? And so we see how our culture has been pushed in this direction. And the fruit has been absolutely devastating. And so what we want to look at today is Marxism. And how the new left, the new Marxist ideology has actually, whereas Rousseau reinterpreted the self and Freud reinterpreted the emotional self as, or the, the, the self of feelings, primarily to sexual feelings, then Marx hijacked that. And the, how many have ever heard of the Frankfurt School of Social Theory? The Frankfurt School. And who, who's ever heard of critical race theory? Critical theory in general. It came out of the Frankfurt School. Frankfurt School was founded in Germany in the, the mid-1920s. And it was a response to the rise of Nazism and Hitler's reign in, uh, in Germany. That was the, the, really the thing that they were tackling. They were wondering, how is it that this madman mad could hijack a nation? 
Because these were Marxists, they were Jewish and German Marxists that wanted to see communism take traction in Germany because their, their ideology was that, see, Marxist ideology is built on a Hegelian dialectics. Dialectics was Plato and Socrates way back in Grecian history. They had this idea of debate. Hegel, er, dialectics was that someone would bring, they would argue a point. Then they would get the opposite view. Someone else would argue the other point. So I would present a thesis. Then you'd get someone to disagree with me to give an antithesis. And the antithesis of my thesis would come together and then we would arrive at a synthesis, an idea that comes out of that. Well, what Marx did, Karl Marx took, or Hegel, um, Hegel took that and looked at that, at, he began to harness that for social theory. It wasn't just about philosophical debate. Now it was about social theory. And Marx really grabbed onto this and he looked at history as this ever-moving, ever-evolving set of conflicts that's going to move us towards the utopia where there will be no government, there will be no need for any government because we will all share everything in common. And so the idea is that Marxism is, a, is an ideology that's based on a couple of things. Number one, it's a, it's a philosophy of conflict and they foment conflict. They're always trying to stir up conflict because they believe, see, Marx knew that he owed his career to Darwin. What Darwin set up as a theory in biology saying that man was evolving it's the survival of the fittest. You know that, that there was, uh, I think it was Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem and he, he, there's a famous phrase out of that poem that says, red and tooth and claw. You ever heard that phrase? Red and tooth and claw. It's talking about the violent nature of the animal kingdom. They're red and tooth and claw and it's the survival of the fittest. And the biggest, baddest lion in the jungle will be the king and it's just gonna tear through. And that's the whole idea that Darwin believed that's how man evolved. See, all of this, all, all that we're talking about is actually man's attempt to discover meaning in life void of God. They take God out and now we've got to figure out why, why am I here? Where am I going? What's the purpose? Who am I? Those grand questions, but they refuse to look to God. And so Hegelian theory was that conflict and Darwinianism was what Darwinian said about biology, Marx adopted for sociology. And he said, history is the story of the survival of the fittest. And there's always going to be conflict. And, we're, and, and death is inevitable and conflict is inevitable. And so, we were, so they would actually do this as a, uh, a political strategy, if you will. They would introduce a, a subject they knew wouldn't be accepted. It would be argued from the opposite uh, side. And then there would be a synthesis of those two ideas, knowing that they couldn't get it all at, up front. So they would, they would introduce something. For instance, same-sex marriage began to be talked about way back in the 70s. And nobody thought that was going to happen. But when they introduced it, it would be argued against and they would be a little farther down the road than they were before. And now we find ourselves here today. And so, and, and this, that whole idea of same-sex marriage and the sexualization of man is very crucial for us to understand in regards to Marxism. So what I'm saying is this, Rousseau redefined man as the therapeutic self. It's all about your feelings. Freud added to that the sexual identity of man. It's all about sex. And the ultimate goal of man is to be satisfied sexually. And the only way to, for him to really be whole and satisfied in life is through sexual encounters. The new Marxism has redefined Marxism by adding to it Freudian ideology. And so the Frankfurt School, what they did is they looked at, at uh, Hitler's rise and they found their... The, the missing link in their mind through Freud. Freud called it the Oedipus con, uh, complex, that his theory, and I apologize for talking about all this stuff in public, but we need to understand. 
Freud believed, he, he called it the Oedipus complex, that every little child is attracted sexually to its same-sex parent. And so, and it fears, but has, it has this conflicted uh, relationship with the other one, especially the father, the domineering father, the son wants the mother, wants to kill the father, but will appease the father and all this. And see, they picked up that philosophy and said, that explains why people would bow the knee to Hitler. And so their idea of merging sexual identity and Marxism together has really redefined where the new left is going. Now, just pause there. Let me, let me share something with you. I want to read you something. One of the fallacies propagated by the left is a false view of governmental philosophies. And we need to understand this, okay? Uh, we're inevitably going to get into a little politics this morning. Uh, politics are the avenue or the methodology by which we vote in people to rule over us. So it's a very important thing. Scripture is very clear. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people moan. I don't know about you, but I don't want to moan. I want to rejoice. And so the gospel, the scriptures have application to all of life. Every facet of life needs to be brought under the supremacy of the word and the lordship of the word of God, even politics. So it's inevitable that we talk about politics, and I have an obligation to do so. Now, I know a good share of you are like, Pastor, why even say it? We already know that. Some of you don't. Politics need to come under the lordship of Christ. Politics are not the ultimate. The kingdom is the ultimate. But while we live in a fallen world, and while we live in a country where we have been given the holy entrustment to cast a vote, that you have a measure of authority to determine who will rule over you, you better do that through the lens of Scripture. Okay, that's enough for that. Got a little hobby horse there. This fallacy, okay, there's one of the fallacies propagated by the left is a false view of governmental philosophy. And I would say this fallacy is even being, it's being uh, propagated by both parties across the board, media, so forth. This, and, and many of you have heard this fallacy and just accept it. This fallacy claims that on the continuum of governmental philosophies, you have communism on the left and on the extreme right, you have fascism. The problem is a study of either history or the meaning of either of these terms will quickly clarify this error. In actuality, on the continuum of governmental philosophies, you have absolute government on one side, which includes both communism and fascism, because they're both different forms of totalitarian regimes. And on the other, hand, other end of the pendulum, you have anarchy, which is the absence of government. And in the middle, you have the form of government enshrined in our founding documents. A republic. We're not a democracy, we're a republic. We have representatives. Lest we be, what, lest small populations be ruled by larger populations, we're a republic and we vote in representatives. Between these two extremes, you find the type of government enshrined in the founding documents of our nation within a republic is room for both a liberal and a conservative expression. And we need to understand this. Within a free republic, there's expression for liberalism or the old guard Democrats and conservatism, the old guard Republicans. There's room for both. There is a continuum there. The difference between the two is how big a role the government plays. Liberals believe in bigger government and conservatives believe in smaller government. What we have seen, however, over the last 70 years is the slow takeover of the liberal party of the Democrats by leftists. Now, lest you think I'm choosing sides and just being, you know, going up here to beat up on one side, there, there's a lot of leftism even in Repu the Republican Party. So we tend to look at economic policy, fiscal policy, but underlying fiscal policy is social policy. 
and that social policy is driving things. Your economic policy is only as good as your social policy because social policy is touching on morality. Fiscal policy does as well, make no mistake about it. But when we're talking about the value for life, guarding the innocence of children through, from sexual immorality, all of those things, those become social policy, fiscal policy. Leftists are not liberals. I know, I know some good liberal Christians, okay? All that means is they, have a, they, they, have, they believe in a bigger, uh, a bigger swath of the government's responsibility than a conservative would be. Leftists believe in absolute government. The problem is the once proud liberal party has been hijacked by those who are redefining their platform the, the new vision, the, with their new vision for America, absolute government. And for many of us, We've watched surprised and troubled by how we see this leftist ideology in both parties when it serves their pocketbook. And we need to understand that. True to historical forms, these leftists will stop at nothing to establish their vision. Once the most troubling developments in the reemergence of the terrorist arm of, uh, one of the most troubling developments is the reemergence of the terrorist arm of leftist ideology. I'm talking about Antifa. It is a terrorist arm of leftist ideology. Many of these are paid people to go out there and the supplies are already put in place so that they can riot, and there's a, there is a political end towards those riot, uh, for those riots. Although this is nothing new, the endorsement of leadership is revealing at j just how far this takeover has progressed. The interesting thing is the, the leaders of these parties learn nothing from history, because what will happen is the radical ends of a party will devour the leaders once they're in charge. And we're seeing this already. So, Marxist ideology is, it's a, view, it's a material worldview that is built on conflict. And it has a presupposition. It divides the world between the haves and the have-nots. The rich and the poor it, it tries to, it, it's the politics of envy. And it tries to overthrow, and it always assumes, and here's the weird thing. If you've ever wondered, how is it that leftists march for LGBTQ rights, and, and let me just be very clear. I don't think anybody should be persecuted. I don't believe anybody should be shut out of society. Uh, regardless of their sexual identity. I think kindness is the rule of the day from a Christian worldview. We need to love people. We need to help people. But I also don't believe that should, I don't believe it should be taken into the equation either way. They shouldn't be given special rights and they shouldn't have rights taken away. But if you, you some of you have wondered, how is it that the left is so vehemently for LGBTQ rights, and even the sexualization of children, yet they're also for the Palestinian state and other Muslim nations that would kill the homosexuals that they march for. What's the deal with that? It's because of this assumption in Marxist ideology that the, one, the people in power are always the corrupt ones. And they must have gotten there by corruption. And everything, the, the, the culture in which they, over which they rule is built to sustain their power base. And so Marxist ideology is always out to overthrow the power base until they, they become the power base. That's the idea be, behind Marxism. And it is a, a decidedly atheistic worldview. There is no God. Man is part of the animal kingdom and he is forging his own identity through conflict and it's red and tooth and claw. And so that's the idea. What happened with the Frankfurt School 
uh, out of that came critical race theory. And they, what they did is they redefined oppression. Prior to that, oppression was economic oppression or ethnic oppression. What they did is they redefined it through the therapeutic model of both Rousseau and Freud, and now oppression is sexual and therapeutic or psychological oppression. Once you take it out of the realm of finances, it becomes much more subjective. Once it becomes an issue of feelings, you violated my feelings, then all of a sudden, hate crimes become a much bigger thing. All of a sudden, the police have to not just look at actions, but thoughts and motivations and attitudes. And so what the Frankfurt School did, and the the primary driver, this was two guys, Reich and uh, Marcuse, they took this and they sexualized, they, they sexualized oppression. And so now the lines have fallen along sexual lines bond gender identity along the lines of sexual rights. And so that's why we see this whole thing going on. We look at why, why would somebody go to a Christian baker, why would a homosexual couple that wants to get married go to a Christian baker and said, bake us a cake. And when they refuse, or we're gonna shut down your business, we're gonna sue you and destroy your financial life. They haven't, They're not starving them. They'll they'll make them a cake. They're just not going to participate in their homosexual wedding. What's behind that? It is a psychological view of man and a sexual view of man that says my primary identity is my feelings about my sexuality. And I'm not looking for mere toleration. I must have endorsement or you're doing violence against my identity. You're trying to erase me. And if you're trying to erase me, I will erase you. In fact, I have an obligation to erase you because you are the oppressor of the modern world. Another way this is shown, and we're seeing this begin to happen more, is the idea Marxist ideology understood that the nuclear family must be overthrown. Marx understood that, and it became even more of a goal under Marcusean philosophy. Because what they were saying, what they, they understand that the family is the primary, uh, the, the, the primary way that children have morals instilled into them. And the greatest defense you have against a totalitarian state and its atheistic worldview are Christian parents and parents that are raising their kids. But under Freudian philosophy, children from birth are sexual. And so, and they understood that one of their primary strategies is we've got to get sexual education in as early as possible. We've got to begin to introduce these concepts to these children. Whereas a Christian understands we are fallen. Nobody can be uh, trusted with absolute power. We're fallen, but we also have moral innocence when we come into the world. Now, we've talked about this before. We don't have time to get into this. But theologically, innocence and purity are two different things. Innocence is never having been confronted with evil. Purity is holding to to that innocence even when you're confronted. And having a sinful nature doesn't negate the innocence of a child. The child has not been exposed to those things. And so there's a strategy within leftist ideology that if we can expose these kids at a very young age, we can begin to bend them and awaken those things. And, we can, and, and in order to do so, we've got to put ourselves between them and their parents because we have to protect these children from the oppressors. Now, we talked about this uh, two weeks ago. Uh, when Black Lives Matter first launched after the tragic death of George Floyd, they, it was a brilliant strategy to begin to march under the banner of Black Lives Matter. Who wouldn't agree with that statement? Of course Black Lives Matter. And after that, that horrendous scene, who wasn't broken and just wanted to get up and march and carry a sign? The problem was, when you talk to the founders of that movement, 
They admitted they are black, feminist, LGBTQ Marxists, trained in Marxist ideology. And on their front page, when you went to that front page initially, it said things like, we're for the overthrow of the nuclear family, for the destruction of the patriarchy. Men, it didn't even mention the need for men. It was all about the need of women to shape their children, and children need to be raised in the community. It was a, it was a Marxist ideology that children have to be shaped by the, the, the wider group. Parents don't own their children. They don't have the right to say what their children can and cannot do. In fact, you are an oppressor if you try to shield your child from sexuality when they're little. You are oppressing their therapeutic sexual self. There was a, a, a book called Primal Screams. A couple of years ago, I, I had shared about this book. It was a brilliant book written by a Catholic sociologist, a woman, and a very insightful book. And she, what she's asking is, what is the root of, uh, where did we get this thing uh, of identity politics? Where is this coming from? And she, she attacks it from a different, she traces the roots from a different perspective. And she talks about how the breakdown of the home is where identity politics are coming from. And what she was saying is this. Uh, let, let me read you a couple quotes by her. She said, many of us live in pattern. She's talking about the sexual revolution, which was, by the way, a book written by Reich, and Reich called for the sexualization of even little children, said that we have to go to war for this. He was a Marxist, and he said we need to go to war for even the sexualization of little children, and the state needs to use its power to overthrow the family to save children from their parents' puritanical views. His book was like the handbook of the 60s sexual revolution. And so there was a strategy behind this. And so this woman, uh, Mary Eberstadt, she did a lot of research and she traced how this breakdown of the home has caused all these psychological problems and they are, at going, they are rising at an exponential rate, even in just the last number of years prior to COVID. And it's because of the breakdown of the home. She, and she, she talks about how the sexual revolution resulted in this. Many of us live in patterns of serial monogamy, for instance, in which one partner is followed by another. When children are present, this means a consistently shifting set of family members to whom one is sometimes biologically related and sometimes not. Stepfathers, half-siblings, full-siblings, nominal uncles and cousins and other permutations that mimic and serve to substitute for the family of one's biological relations. As couples form and unform, people find new partners and shed old ones. These relations morph with them. The result for many people is the addition and subtraction of family members on a scale that was unimaginable until reliable contraception for women, followed by the related legalization of abortion, made the deinstitutionalization of traditional marriage and family possible. So then she talks about this. She, what she's insinuating, and she gets into this earlier, she says that our identity is largely formed by our family. That's why children that are adopted will often go and look for their birth parents. There's something within them. They want to know, where did I come from? It is innate in us that wants to know. And so we want to search that out. And so the family is where we get our identity. And so when, we have, when, when that's shattered, what happens is ki the, there's this sense of a loss of identity. Kids are adrift. And the rise of psychological problems uh, in our nation has directly risen with the, the uh, divorce rate and the devastation brought about by the sexual revolution. So this is her premise, and I believe she's exactly right. That the loss of family has caused an identity crisis that in turn has caused people to begin to identify by their woundedness and the trauma they've gone through and then to find tribal affiliation with others who have gone through the same trauma. 
If you struggle with same-sex attraction, you find others that struggle with same-sex attraction and they become your family, your community. And out of that, then the next step is to go to war against anybody that would invalidate your identity based on your trauma. We have this identity politics and she, she's asking this question, what is behind these crazy meltdowns? And, and I've been guilty of this. I've watched the news and thought, wow, what a bunch of snowflakes. <laughs> but I don't do that anymore. Because I realize what's behind it and it absolutely breaks my heart. And it needs to break our heart. I'm telling you, God can't trust us with a harvest among those group of people until our heart is broken for them. What is behind these meltdowns, these these howling fits that you see them melt down in public, screaming, yelling, not unwilling to even have a, a civil conversation? It's this ideology, it's the fruit of this ideology. And beneath that is tremendous pain from the shattering of the family. I didn't know it was this late. Let me read you through a couple things here like it's your fault. I didn't know it was this late, guys. Let me, let me just read a couple things real quick and then I want to land this because we need to know what do we do about all this. Okay, Marx believed capitalism would cave in upon itself, revealing to the working class that they must no longer participate in this failed system which enslaves them. Lenin discovered this would not work within Russia. Their peasant system just didn't lead to that. Their, their idea of dialectics that this would lead to utopia wasn't working. So what they did is they did it by force through the Bolsheviks and then killed the Bolsheviks off once they were in power. Just like I said, the, 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 the first wave of the movement is removed as too conservative. Elites, so what, what uh, Lenin allowed for elites to teach them about the evils of capitalism and the unfair nature of competition. This is our university system today, by the way. This worked, this worked in Russia, but it failed in Germany and Italy. And it also failed in the U.S. and Britain during the Great Depression. Uh, the, the Marxists thought, oh, man, America is ripe for the picking because this failed capitalistic system is going to crumble in the, the Great Depression, and it didn't. And so that that's, was part of what was behind the Frankfurt School. They began to ask these questions and really drove them in. Made up of a group of Ger- German and Jewish Marxist intellectuals, they applied themselves to the question of why things went the way of Hitler and Nazism as opposed to Marxism. The revolution of Marx proposed was further hindered by Lenin's brutality and the purging of the Bolsheviks. Again, they'd say, well, that was just because Marxism was misapplied. It's been tried again and again, and millions, hundreds of millions have died, but, well, that just wasn't tried the right way. At least they're consistent. Historical dialectics were not working as expected, so they set out to determine why. They eventually attributed the failure to move toward Marxist utopia, to the Oedipus Freudian theory, where they feared but were, wanted to please Hitler. And so out of that flowed this idea, okay, we've got to attack this. We've got to overthrow the patriarch. We've got to destroy the family. The family, and what we need to understand is Marxism, the new left, cannot tolerate either the church because of its morality and its basis of believing that it's ruled by God and not by the state and its willingness to give its life for those ideals. And neither can it tolerate the family. The whole thing of their coming for your children is true. And there's a lot on the line and we've got to intercede, we've got to pray, and we've got to do one other thing. Well, a couple of other things, but one that we're going to look at in just a moment here. Who will give me just five minutes? Five, minutes, five ten, fifteen, twenty, okay. Um, just kidding. I know, that's an old one. The, uh, whereas Lenin revised Marxism, Reich revised Freud by relative his view of the necessity of sexual repression for the sake of society. Uh, I won't get into that. Uh, the merging of identity in Rousseau's true self and the interior man and his drives coupled with Freud's interpretation of every drive through a sexual lens, even in children, was now interpreted as a necessity for freedom under Reich's merging of Freudianism and Marxism. And that is the new left. It has been redefined. Oppression is no longer along economic lines because capitalism has largely evened that out. The whole idea of the 
the proletariat was the, the working class in the, uh, what was it, the uh, bourgeois, bourgeois is what they called the, the middle class. We are, the working class is the middle class now. Capitalism has overthrown that. So they've redefined the lines to, are you going to hold people captive to your sexual morals? And they're willing to overthrow nations for that ideal. The old Marxism recognized the need to undermine the family as the last bastion of influence in the lives of the populace. Wright came to the same conclusion through the therapeutic lens of Rousseau and the sexual lens of Freud. This redefined child abuse and the responsibility of the state to protect children from abusive parents. We all acknowledge the government needs to have the power to protect children from abusive parents. Everybody agree with that? The problem is when they redefine abuse. Under this new law, and we're seeing children, we're seeing it being toyed with giving children hormone replacement therapy without the permission of the parent. Why? Because in their mind, the child belongs to the state and you're the oppressor if you would tell them to do otherwise. Under this view, abuse and repression of sexual activity of their children while protection was state intervention through overt sex education and the shielding of children from parent, parental and religious intervention, shielding them from sexual experiences. Anybody who attempts to inhibit a child's sexual life is abusive, causing psychological harm. This is interpreted through political lens, attributing political motives to those who feel the need to protect children's innocence. The bottom line is this. Sex is now politicized. You cannot talk about politics without it landing you within the realm of sex. It has become the, the, the place where lines are drawn. And we need to understand this. It's an unpleasant subject. It, I mean, what a bummer place to land. So here's what we need to do. God sets the lonely in families. Reich understood in order to accomplish the overthrow of this nation and every other nation was to eradicate the teaching of faith and eradicate the nuclear family. Marx understood that. And they were right. And so what do we need to do? We need to make sure our families are strong. We need to fight for our kids like never before. Fight in intercession. Fight at the voting booth. Fight in culture. Become the shining example of what a family is called to be. Dads who lay down their life for their wife and children. Mothers who exemplify that motherly love, that, that mama bear mentality. And instill in our kids an understanding of the economic models that come out of that worldview and so forth. So we need strong individual families. Number two, we need to be a strong family right here. We must be the family of God. It is not a coincidence that one of the names that God laid upon his church at the family of God was the very thing that these Marxist revolutionaries understood needs to be overthrown for them to get their way. These people are not our enemies. They are deceived. But the ideology that they want to lace into this nation that will destroy this nation is our enemy. And one of the bulwarks against that is when the church becomes the family of God. I'm telling you, that video that we watched about life groups is extremely relevant right now. We have got to become the community of faith, of strong bonds. I was telling someone this week, I felt this thing just bubbling up in me as of late. I wanna see God give us a fresh baptism of love and holy affection for one another. I want when we bump into each other at Walmart to have all of a sudden this, this affection that we have for each other that, that it's like seeing family, that we are in this thing together, that we are fighting for one another and one another's success. The Jewish people were a family culture. There were patriarchs, I'm telling you, God wants to raise up fathers and mothers in the extended family in this house. The elders of this house are fathers and mothers in this house. 
And we as elders must take responsibility to love on the extended family and make sure that we're safe. That expression of the kingdom is the number one defense against the encroaching ideology of the age. Marx was right that in order for a nation to be defeated, the family has to be eradicated. And we've got to draw a line in the sand. Here's what scripture says. David wrote, God sets the lonely in families. I'm telling you, God's looking for families this morning. He's looking for churches that say, we will be the family of God. I had a conversation with a pastor in Kansas this week and we were talking about this and I was saying that how churches need to, we, our Wednesday night class, here's a shameless plug, it's about healthy relationships. Why? Because healthy churches can absorb unhealthy people and bring them to emotional and physical and spiritual health. But if we're not healthy, we can't absorb the unhealthy people of this age. We can't help them. We can only give what we have. And if we don't have healthy families and healthy relationships, then we can't absorb. But God is looking to raise up healthy churches where broken ones, like I was, can be brought in and absorbed with all my crazy ideas. I could be absorbed and corrected and loved and, and reparented in the family of God and raised up so I could become one that turns around and receives the next unhealthy one, amen? amen. That's, that is the answer to this thing. I'm gonna ask you to stand. Father, we're asking that you would choose us. Lord, that you would create in this house healthy relationships, covenantal love one for another. Lord, we thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself. But Lord, we want a deeper reality of being reconciled one to another that we're bound to you. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to realize that in being joined to you, we're joined to your body. And that by loving your body, we're loving you. Father, we're asking that you would give us a fresh baptism of love. I really do apologize. I'm gonna take two more minutes. Two and a half years ago when we launched these prayer meetings in the morning, I can tell you the moment in time where it dropped in this house. I was on the phone with Jeff Collins, a dear friend, travels all over the world. Jeff is just a broken-hearted lover of Jesus, does missions work all over the world. And when all the cultural upheaval happened a few years ago, I called Jeff and I said, Jeff, what is the Lord saying to you? And Jeff is such an interesting, he said, he said Dave, he said, I was on my way to a prayer meeting and he said, I had a prophetic astonishment I thought, what is that? <laughs> he never did tell me. what a He didn't define it, but he told me what happened. He said, I was on my way to the prayer meeting. The Lord spoke to me and said, the state of the church right now is the two prostitutes standing before King Solomon. And when he said it, it's just this weeping came over me. It's just this brokenness because I knew it was right. And I thought, Lord, God, what does it mean? I said, Jeff, what does it mean? He said, I don't know, Dave. He said, this much I do know. I'm still praying into it. But this much I do know, there's no moral high ground. We've all been prostitutes. We've all been unfaithful. As I prayed into that, this is what I feel like the Lord was saying. That the state of the church are the two prostitutes standing before the throne Half of the emerging generation, remember there were two babies, one of which had died under the slumbering body of his mother. And there was one that remained. And half of the emerging generation has died underneath the weight of the sleeping, unfaithful church. And now they're both standing before the throne, crying out for the life of that emerging generation. And neither one of them could claim the moral high ground. Well, I'm a, I'd be a better parent. I've got this. I've done that. Both of them knew their moral state. But what happened was the king was moved 
by the one who cried out for the life of that child. And he awarded the care of that baby to the one who was willing to do without. The one who was just concerned about the baby's life. And God wants to break our hearts. I'm serious. This thing about us laughing at the TV and all that, there's no place for that right now. We don't have that luxury. We, our hearts need to be broken for this generation, for the state of this nation. There needs to be something in us that is buckled over, crying out for the life of this nation and for this generation. It's not about our prosperity as a nation. It's not about wanting to go back to the, the nice days before 2020. That's not what this is about. This is about the souls and the balances right now. And we need God to break our heart. And so, Father, we ask again, break our hearts. Lord, we're asking, do what we can't do on our own. Lord, help us to see them from your perspective. And Lord, we want to enter into the fellowship with your suffering when you look at this generation, Lord, save its life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.